God's already been speaking to us this morning about wanting us to get truth uh, and for it to change our lives. And so it kind of figures before we open up God's Word together uh, that we ask Him to come and speak truth in a life-transforming way to us. So let's call out to Him. Heavenly Father, I want to ask right now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come powerfully among us, unblocking ears to hear your voice, uh, opening eyes to see truths that previously we were oblivious to, uh, stirring in our hearts fresh passion and desire to live in the good of what it says in your word. Father, I want to ask you to help me to be faithful uh, in the delivery of truth, and would you cause each of us to respond in a way that does transform us, help us to live in the good of truth. I pray. Amen. Okay, I want to keep it simple today. Um, I've got various kind of sub points, but really basically running through it all, just one simple point I want to drive home. But I need to warn you from the very beginning that it is actually a hugely unpopular point that really goes against the grain of what our culture thinks. It's going to cut right across the way we like to think about ourselves. It's going to feel at times for me as though I'm swimming upstream. But here's what I want you to see. We need help. We haven't got all the answers. We are limited and we need help. That's pretty much the message of the book of Habakkuk. And Mark earlier was kind of prophesying about, uh, well, actually, the limits are coming off. uh, And I want you to hold that in mind as we, first of all, turn our attention on ourselves and see our limits. Hopefully, you will then get to see God and see that actually the potential is limitless with him. But just to catch you up, what's been going on in the book of Habakkuk thus far, this guy Habakkuk, uh, he sees that God's people are acting in an idolatrous and pretty wicked manner. And so he goes to God, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? God, are you just going to idly watch all of this and just sit there doing nothing? To which God responds, oh, I'm going to do something about this, okay. Uh, I'm going to send the Babylonians to judge and destroy you. And then, in the verses we're going to be reading today, Habakkuk changes tack slightly and tries to sweet-talk God into changing his mind. He's going, God, you're so great. You're so wonderful. You are so incredibly holy. Surely that's not going to happen. I can't believe that someone as wonderful as you is going to do that. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 12. This is what Habakkuk says, "'O Lord,' Are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Surely your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Let's pause there for a moment. Really, Habakkuk inadvertently has already backed himself into a corner with his first complaint to God. His first complaint is, God, you are idle about wickedness. You don't do anything about the wickedness you see in front of you. And God goes, oh no, I'm not. 
There is always justice. There is always judgment for wickedness. We looked at that two weeks ago. God says, I'm not idle. In fact, I am bringing judgment right now. To which Habakkuk goes, whoa, wait a minute. I don't like the way you're going to do that. Because the Babylonians, this nation you're going to use to bring about your justice and your judgment, the Babylonians are even worse than us. Surely, God, you are way too holy to use people like that. Surely that can't be what you're going to do. Verse 14, here's his accusation. He says to God, God, you have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy. In other words, kind of picture language here, but Habakkuk's problem with God is that God is punishing his own people for their wickedness with a nation that is even more wicked. Habakkuk's saying, look, if you use the Babylonians to bring judgment on us, They are simply going to exalt themselves even more and sacrifice even more to their own false gods. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if we could be really honest here, we all go through times, don't we, when we are completely confused about what God's doing. We're faced with a problem. We're faced with a set of circumstances We're faced with a setback. We're going through a period of pain that just doesn't make any sense to us. We we can't see why it's happening. We can't see what possible good could come from it. We can't see a way through, and it hurts. So I don't want you to hear me saying that we're not allowed to ask questions of God. I don't want you to hear me saying that we're not allowed even to plead with God on certain things. We've already seen, haven't we, in previous weeks that that's not the case in Habakkuk. Honesty before God is a good thing. Would that there was a whole lot more honesty and reality in the church. It's okay to be bothered. It's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be perplexed at times, to have questions for God. But we must understand our position in it all. Like, if I have a disagreement with Helen, my wife, my tone is very different to when I have a disagreement with one of my boys. So, if Nathan doesn't tidy his bedroom after I've asked him to, it's kind of like, look, go to your room and tidy it now. I don't speak to Helen like that. If Helen leaves clothes strewn across the bedroom, it's like, look, Helen, I I know this probably isn't a priority for you right now, but might you be able to do something about it when it's convenient? I mean, she's not here to back me up, but that's how I talk to her. You see, (laughs) 
how we talk to someone is kind of dictated by who we are in relation to them. And so, what I want to try and show you for the remainder of our time today is how we differ from God. Because if we get this, it'll not only help us bring our frustrations to God, but it'll also provide a whole lot of motivation to do so. Not kind of us shaking our fists at Him and saying, God, I need to help you see how this should work, but rather pleading with God for help because we acknowledge who He is in relation to us. But like I've said already, this is going to fly right in the face of what our culture thinks. Let's start with us. Hands up, if last night you watched either Britain's Got Talent, The Voice, or Match of the Day. That covers most bases. Hands up. Ah, loads of people in the room. Okay, if you watched one of those programs, basically, it was all about the unlimited potential of certain individuals with the right coaching, with the right environment, with the right amount of confidence, it's like the sky's the limit. And we can buy into that whole way of thinking. We live in a culture that relentlessly celebrates the unlimited potential of man. You can do it in your own strength. You can overcome it by yourself. You can make it happen. You can live the dream. My simple point to you today is, no, you can't. We're actually, in and of ourselves, by ourselves, unbelievably limited. And although we love to celebrate our achievements, what we think we're unreal, we we can big up how great and impressive we are, actually we are in desperate, desperate need of help. And the problem is, all the time we keep living as though we ourselves are the answer. We think that we in our own strength should be able to solve all our problems. We think we should be able to overcome anything that happens to us in our own strength. And it's like this rod that we beat ourselves with in terms of, I can't do it, but I should, and I need to persevere, and I should be overcoming. And, and, and we can't by ourselves. It's like there's this gaping hole in our understanding that leaves us thinking that we're in charge, that we ourselves know what's best for us, that we have the potential to succeed on our own. Every one of you, I don't care what your IQ is, don't care how big your brain is, how well it functions, don't care how great an athlete you are, how much money you make, the career trajectory you're on, your achievements and accomplishments thus far. Don't care how others perceive you, think of you, speak of you. You are limited and you need help. I just touched on a few of our limitations. First of all, we're all limited in time. Now, we know, don't we, that we're going to die. I mean, that's not news to you. No one just went, what? Where did that thought come from? That's news to me. No, no, no. Everyone in this room knows we're going to die. But I'd suggest very few of us feel the weight of that. It's like we push it out into the distant future where we don't have to think about it. I mean, no one probably woke up this morning thinking, oh, today's the day I'm going to die. 
I mean, we don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. We don't think it's going to happen this week or this month or this year. If we're honest, we don't think it's happening anytime soon. No one feels the weight of this. So we behave as though we're gods. We behave as though we are immortal. And we're not. Here's how the Bible speaks of us. Psalm 39, verse 5. You, O God, have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Psalm 103, verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. That's how it is, isn't it? I mean, how many of you could give me the name of your great-great-great-grandfather? Any of you? Oh, one of you. Okay, how many of you thought about him in the last week? No, no, no. And if I put a picture of him in front of you, probably you'd be like, who on earth is that? And that's your family. That's your bloodline. And just to make it sting, that's you in the blink of an eye. Any type of illusion of grandeur that you have where 200 years from now, people are going to be looking at your life going, this is where it all changed. This is where the whole course of history was transformed. People in schools kind of studying your life. It's just a huge deception. It's not reality. The Bible says, you're here for a second, that's it. So, if we were to take all of known history, try and compress it into an hour, your time here is kind of the equivalent of half a millisecond. So when we've got issues with God, when we have issues with how things are playing out, we must remember that our limited time here affects how we're able to see. It's why I don't ask my 11-year-old son for retirement advice. I mean, son, how much should I be putting away in my pension? And would I be better investing it elsewhere? And when I retire, how much should I draw down? And what kind of an annuity should I go for? And what do you reckon? I don't ask that kind of question of Joel. I mean, he's bright, but not that bright. Why? Because he hasn't lived long enough to know the answer. So, if God is eternal, and you're here for the equivalent of half a millisecond, you really can't argue from any position of authority. It's like you watching a minute of a film, and me watching the whole film, and you arguing that you have a better grasp of the plot than me. That's kind of the difference between us and God. We are very, very limited in regards to time. On top of being limited in time, we're also absolutely limited in scope. I want to read you a chunk from the book of Job, Job chapter 38. Like Habakkuk, Job has some serious issues with how God is running things. And God's like, okay, let's do this. 
Now you see what I mean. Look at Job 38, starting in verse 1. Job says, or rather, the Lord says to Job, answers Job out of the storm. He says, who's this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Come on, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. I mean, I love the fact God's sarcastic. I mean, I feel vindicated so often with this. I don't just like God. I mean, that's what he'd say. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Down to verse 16. God's still in full flow at this point. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does the darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. I mean, you've lived so many years. This goes on for four chapters. And in the middle of it all, Job goes, okay, I'm sorry. I've kind of learned my lesson. Not going to open my mouth anymore. And God goes, no, 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 no. You brace yourself like a man. You wanted to have this conversation. Let's have this conversation. It's like God systematically breaks down Job's limitations. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Surely you know how all of this works. Keep on reading. You'd see God go, hey, Job, are there any goats giving birth right now? What about the deepest parts of the sea? What are the monsters like that exist down there? And What about the tops of the mountains? What are the rams doing up there right now? Surely you know, great scholar that you are. What about the birds flying in the air? What are they looking for? Who gave the hawks such sharp eyes? I mean, was that your idea? Was that your idea to make the hawk fly so high that a sea down into the ground? It just goes on and on and on like that. He, he literally just dresses Job down, tells him to dress for action like a man, and then he strips him. And this is God's way of communicating to Job and to us that we are limited in time and we're limited in scope. We simply can't see all that's going on at this moment in time, let alone in all of time. So right now, we're sitting in this room. Elsewhere in the building, we've got various different activities going on for the children. You have no idea what's going on in those rooms right now. Now, don't freak out if you're a parent. I'm not about to tell you, like, ha-ha, we've brought loads of venomous snakes into the building and we've released them in the kids' work. No, 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 that's not what's happening. I'm just saying, you don't know. You have no idea what's going on in the rooms around the building right now. Kind of parents rushing out to make sure their kids are okay. You don't even know what's going on behind you right now. I can see 
I I can see the faces that the person behind you is putting. You don't know. You know much less what's going on around the city that we're in. Much less what's going on over this country right now. Much less what's going on all around the world, second by second. And this limitation is present despite all the technology that we have that can bring different parts of the world beamed into our living room or onto our phones. Despite the technology, we are still limited in scope. Limited in time, limited in scope. We're also limited in our ability to fix things. And here's the crazy part. Most of the time, we are unaware of that reality. Most of the time, we're unaware of our limitations because everything in our culture talks about our endless possibilities, our unlimited potential and how to grasp the power of what's within. You know, one of the largest sections of books in the bookshop is self-help, kind of fix-yourself kinds of books. I'm going to contend that the reality is no one has lied to you more than you have. In fact, no one has betrayed you more than you have betrayed yourself over the years. I mean, you can blame or point fingers at whoever you want to blame or point fingers at, often justifiably, but the biggest liar you know is actually you. Because a lot of the time, you think you know best. You think you have the ability to do it yourself but you're never going to be able to fix you. I mean, isn't that obvious right now? Watch our people in our culture trying to solve the issues of our culture. Our marriage isn't really working, so we'll try and introduce new partners into the mix, and we'll swap around a little bit, and maybe that will fire up the spices in our relationship. Tell you how that ends. Divorce and heartbreak. Divorce and heartbreak. We're bored, we're lonely, so we'll buy trinkets and toys and gadgets that kind of numb it for a second. As a result, many of us are are carrying a ridiculous amount of debt because we're trying to solve a problem that we can't solve by ourselves. Now, don't hear me wrong, having new stuff is cool, It's, it's great at times, but it never satisfies for long. It only numbs it for a second. And sometimes that's all we're wanting, just to numb the boredom or the loneliness, or the emptiness, just for a second. Now again, I never want to minimise your pain. In no way do I want to downplay the reality of your hurts, and your doubts, and your fears. I know they're legitimate, they're real. But here's the point. Here's what you have to hear me say. You by yourself can't fix this. You can't. And isn't that the lesson of history? Because of man's limitations, man has no ability to fix the real problems of man. It's like every time we solve a perceived problem, we almost always create a newer, more serious problem than the problem we were trying to solve in the first place. I'll give you some examples. Again, show of hands. How many of you have been on the internet in the last week? 
Uh, quite a few people. Pretty much all of us. Has anything changed the world like the internet? I mean, when's the last time you called the cinema to see what time something was showing? I mean, you remember when we had to do that? You'd have to kind of listen to all the showings, and your movie was always the last one on the list. You'd have to sit there for 20 minutes until it finally got there, by which time you've missed the start of the film. I mean, no one does that anymore. When's the last time you unfolded a map in your car? Yeah, we don't do that anymore. You tell your phone, I need to get to Sheffield you kind of plonk your phone on the dashboard and you just follow the arrow. I mean, it's completely changed the way we operate. Even now, I can access online thousands and thousands of books and journal articles, everything from how to break down Greek words to how often they're used in the New Testament and their correlation to Hebrew words. I can do all of that from my computer anywhere in the world. All I need is Wi-Fi. I mean, it's a glorious invention. But it also has a very dark side to it. If you track the growth of pornography with the growth of sexual assault and abuse, you'll see that they they hang very closely together. We've brought into our homes what was once extremely difficult to get our hands on. And we've made it culturally acceptable to the detriment of women and the detriment of our relationships with one another. As I touched on last time, for all its connectivity... The internet, it's just shallowed our relationships with others to the point where we have Facebook friends. I mean, think about it. They're not your friends. I mean, you stalk people voyeuristically to the extent you know exactly what they were doing at 9.37 p.m. on Friday and feel resentful and bad because you weren't invited. I mean, that's kind of what we've reduced ourselves to. And on and on we could go. We've hollowed out relationships. We've brought things into our home that we wouldn't have been able to get into our home just 20 years ago without having to go to extreme lengths. A couple more things just to prove my point. Because I don't think there's anything you can mention from the car to email that doesn't help us while at the same time creating more problems for us. Here's some more examples. Anyone here been on antibiotics in the last 12 months? Okay, a few people. So here's what they're starting to figure out. Antibiotics, because of the rate at which we're taking them, are creating these new strains of bacteria that are resistant to the antibiotics. So here's the solution. Make stronger antibiotics. Now, we all know how this ends. We're all zombies and we're killing one another. I mean, we've seen our films, haven't we, to know how this plays out, how it ends up. And on and on we could go. Here's the problem. Let's fix it. And in fixing it, we made the problem worse. And in fixing the worst problem, we're going to just make it worse still. Love to get into splitting the atom and nuclear reactions that could power whole cities without any tax on the world's resources. And then I could get into the fact that we weaponized it. We don't properly watch over it. So you have accidents like Chernobyl. I'm going to leave that one alone, even though I kind of just didn't. But we fix something and inadvertently create bigger problems. You would have thought we would have learned the lesson by now. We are not the answer. We're not the answer. It's one of the main points made in Habakkuk. We cannot solve our greatest issues. And even when we celebrate the fact that we've overcome this one, we've often just created more problems in its place. Listen to me. You are not awesome. You're limited. 
and you need help. Whatever's going on in your marriage, whatever addictions you're struggling to conquer, whatever's going on in your relationships, your friendships, and your family, whatever's constantly churning you up inside, you are not the answer to that. You cannot fix that. You need something or someone that transcends your weaknesses. And that realization has the potential at least to become the foundation of your greatest joy. Because it will result in you seeking something or someone outside of you to solve all of your problems. And that can be a trap too if we look in the wrong places. If we think, okay, this individual, this relationship, this job, this house move, suddenly that will solve it all. No, it won't. We need to find something or someone that is not limited in terms of time and scope to put our hope in. Romans 8 puts it this way, the mind set on the flesh is death. Let me fix this. Let me make this happen. Let me correct this. Let me work it all out. Is death. Whereas the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. I want to know God. I want to follow God. I want to chase after God. My heart is towards God. That's life. It leads to life. So let's turn our attention to God. Needless to say, He's not limited in any way. Let's begin with time. Throughout the Bible, God talks like someone who already knows tomorrow. And not just tomorrow, like you and I can kind of see or anticipate this thing coming. It's not like a prognosis of this might occur. God's going, this is what is going to happen. And so in response to Habakkuk's complaint, God replies in chapter 2, verse 2, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, that might take a while, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God's like, no, I said this was coming. I told you this is how it was going to end. The, the way God talks is so far beyond what you and I can comprehend. So back in Genesis 12, a story we looked at the other week, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And out of that great nation, all the nations on earth will be blessed. The problem is, Abraham and his wife Sarah are a couple of childless senior citizens so Abraham does the logical thing. He kind of brings the problem to God's attention. Look, I'm old. Sarah, my wife, is even older. I don't know how this thing is going to be possible. But 25 years later, 25 years later, Sarah miraculously gives birth. Matthew 24, the disciples, they're wandering around with Jesus. They they look at the temple. Isn't that temple nice, they say? Jesus is going, won't be long until not one stone of this temple will be left on another. Several decades later, 
Rome lays siege to Jerusalem, destroys the temple. What we consistently see through the Bible is a God who exists outside of time. So if all of time has been condensed down into an hour, and if you are the equivalent of half a millisecond of it, God knows the whole hour. He sees the whole hour. That's how the Bible sets apart your ability from God's ability. I said, not only are we limited in time, but we are also limited in scope. We're only aware of what's right in front of us, and even then we can miss things that are obvious. God's not limited like that. He's everywhere. He fills all of space. Look at Psalm 139, verse 5. God, you hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. David's saying, God, wherever I go, you're there. He's not saying, if I go up to the mountains, your authority and your dominion is there. No, he says, you are there. He's not saying, if I go to the depths of the sea, your angels are there. No, he's saying, you are there. There is absolutely nowhere in all of creation, past, present, and future, where God isn't already present. There are no hiding places from Him. There's nowhere to go where God isn't. So once again, if you watch this compare and contrast, you have got this unbelievably limited time frame. You have got this unbelievably limited scope and God sees it all and is everywhere all at once. You see how there's going to be some friction between these two perspectives. Try and illustrate it like this. If you're a parent here, do you ever argue with your kids? Any parents argue with their kids? Yeah, yeah, a few few nods. Why do you argue with your kids? Isn't it this on a much smaller scale? Isn't it you know stuff and you can see stuff that they're oblivious to. I remember as a child getting very upset when my dad once disciplined me for playing in the street after he had told me not to. Like, he's such a harsh father. I mean, it is so incredibly unfair. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I remember he grabbed me and showed me a squashed cat at the side of the road. I mean, it gave me nightmares for years. He kind of pushed my face towards it and said, son, is that what you want? Do you want to end up like that? That's why you're not allowed to play in the streets. That's what it's like 
with us and God. I mean, God's not quite like that, but kind of similar. It's always going to be this tension because we see for a fraction of a millisecond and God sees it all. And even what we see is limited because of our scope, whereas God sees how everything interconnects and interacts in all of time. And I know that this is hard to get our minds around. We have no bearings, no reference for this. But tomorrow isn't just a place that God knows about. It's a place where He already is. If you struggle with anxiety, if you find yourself riddled with fear, I want you to think about the implications of this. It's not merely that God knows what's happening tomorrow. It's that He is already there. And He's a loving, faithful God who will prepare you for whatever's coming. Which moves us to our third point. Not only does He know everything, Not only does he see everything, but God is completely good in everything he does all of the time. That's the assurance Paul gives us in Romans 8 verse 28. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is outside of time. God isn't limited by scope, by space. God is good in all of his dealings with us. Now, having said that, we need to be careful. We need to be careful here that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that our personal comfort should be the chief aim of God. That's how we can think, isn't it? That all of God's purposes through all of time are funneled down into giving me a good night's sleep or helping me find a parking space or healing my cold or finding me a partner. That's how we can think. all, All of God's purposes through all of time a channel just into making my life work out as I want. I'm telling you, God's eternal purposes go way beyond our personal comfort in any given moment. You see, we're not the point. We're not the pinnacle. We're not the goal of all of God's purposes. We are a part of this larger story that's been playing itself out down through the centuries, but we're not the point of it all. So God in His goodness and in His grace, will allow into our lives seasons of difficulty and sorrow and pain, not because He's cruel, not because He's vindictive, not because He's trying to destroy us, but because in regards to perspective and scope, He sees what's actually happening in the grand scheme of things. And we simply don't see that. And so we can bring our questions and our frustrations to God, but ultimately He does know best. And this is the point where I think for a lot of people a whole lot of tension is created. Because if this is true, then what do we do with all the atrocities around us? Like, if you come to a real hardcore atheist 
you'll find that this is one of the first arguments that's made. Well, if God is so good, if God is so loving, then explain the world. I lovingly just go, well, if man's so great, why don't you explain the world? Because we've been trying to fix the same problem since the beginning of time and we're nowhere near solving them. But in the end, if God is everywhere, if God sees everything and if God knows everything, then what do we do with all of the atrocities that we see in the world around us? Perhaps more pertinently, what do we do when it's a little more personal than that? What about when the disaster, the pain, the suffering is closer to home? What are we to do with this tension? Well, we'll talk about that in two weeks' time, because here's where I want to land this today. If we're not the answer, then God is. If we're not the answer, then God is. We can be 100% sure that our best is found in God. Whatever pain, struggle, confusion we're wrestling with, I want to assure you God is the answer. It's only in Him that we find the help that we really need. Paul puts it like this in Romans 8, verse 38. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, not only are all things working together for good, but through it all, nothing can separate me from God's love. Absolutely nothing. And that list is pretty extensive. Not life, not death, not angels, not demons, not my past or my present or anything in the future. That probably covers everything. (laughs) Nothing is going to be able to separate me from the love of Christ Jesus. I want to ask you to go away and meditate on this truth. I want you to think through all the implications for you and your life of this simple reality. And no matter what comes into your life, God knew it was coming. No matter what comes into your life, God, regardless of how it feels to you, has lovingly already begun to prepare you for it. And no matter what comes into your life, God is already there waiting for you. And it won't sever you from the greatest reality in the universe, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And when we grasp this, that's when our lives become limitless. And we acknowledge we are limited and God isn't. That's when those ceilings start being pushed through. Actually, we can overcome. We can move forward, not in our own strength, but when we look to God. So really, this message is just one long appeal to you to pursue God and not just yourself. 
because you need help. And he's it.